Section 12 of the Journal of a Tour to the Hebrides with Samuel Johnson by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anthony Ogus. Monday, 13th September. The room where we lay was a celebrated one. Dr. Johnson's bed was the very bed in which the grandson of the unfortunate King James II lay on one of the nights after the failure of his rash attempt in 1745-6, to while he was eluding the pursuit of the emissaries of government which had offered £30,000 as a reward for apprehending him. To see Dr. Samuel Johnson lying in that bed in the Isle of Skye, in the house of Miss Flora MacDonald, struck me with such a group of ideas as it is not easy for words to describe as they pass through the mind. He smiled and said, I have had no ambitious thoughts in it. The room was decorated with a great variety of maps and prints. Among others was Hogarth's print of Wilkes grinning, with the cap of liberty on a pole by him. That too was a curious circumstance in the scene this morning. Such a contrast was Wilkes to the above group. It reminded me of Sir William Chambers' account of Oriental gardening, in which we are told all odd, strange, ugly and even terrible objects are introduced for the sake of variety, a wild extravagance of taste which is so well ridiculed in the celebrated epistle to him. The following lines of that poem immediately occurred to me. Here too, O King of Vengeance, in thy fane tremendous Wilkes shall rattle his gold chain. Upon the table in our room I found in the morning a slip of paper on which Dr. Johnson had written with his pencil these words. Quantum sedat vitutibus aurum. What he meant by writing them I could not tell. He had caught cold a day or two ago, and the rain yesterday having made it worse, he has become very deaf. At breakfast, he said, he would have given a good deal rather than not have lain in that bed. I owned he was the lucky man, and observed that without doubt it had been contrived between Mrs. MacDonald and him. She seemed to acquiesce, adding, You know, young bucks are always favourites of the ladies. He spoke of Prince Charles being here, and asked Mrs. MacDonald, Who was with him? We were told, madam, in England, there was one Miss Flora MacDonald with him. She said, They were very right. And perceiving Dr. Johnson's curiosity, though he had delicacy enough not to question her, very obligingly entertained him with a recital of the particulars which she herself knew of that escape, which does so much honour to the humanity, fidelity and generosity of the Highlanders. Dr. Johnson listened to her with placid attention and said, All this should be written down. From what she told us, and from what I was told by others personally concerned, and from a paper of information which Razi was so good as to send me at my desire, I have compiled the following abstract, which, as it contains some curious anecdotes, will, I imagine, not be uninteresting to my readers, and even perhaps be of some use to future historians. Prince Charles Edward, after the Battle of Culloden, was conveyed to what is called the Long Island, where he lay for some time concealed, but intelligence having been obtained where he was, and a number of troops having come in quest of him, it became absolutely necessary for him to quit that country without delay. 
Miss Flora MacDonald, then a young lady, animated by what she thought the sacred principle of loyalty, offered with the magnanimity of a heroine to accompany him in an open boat to Skye, though the coast they were to quit was guarded by ships. He dressed himself in women's clothes and passed as her supposed maid by the name of Betty Bork, an Irish girl. They got off undiscovered, though several shots were fired to bring them to, and landed at Mugstot, the seat of Sir Alexander MacDonald. Sir Alexander was then at Fort Augustus with the Duke of Cumberland, but his lady was at home. Prince Charles took his post upon a hill near the house. Flora MacDonald waited on Lady Margaret and acquainted her of the enterprise in which she was engaged. Her ladyship, whose active benevolence was ever seconded by superior talents, showed a perfect presence of mind and readiness of invention, and at once settled that Prince Charles should be conducted to old Rasay, who was himself concealed with some select friends. The plan was instantly communicated to Kingsburg, who was dispatched to the hill to inform the wanderer and carry him refreshments. When Kingsburg approached, he started up and advanced, holding a large knotted stick, and in appearance ready to knock him down, till he said, I am MacDonald of Kingsburg, come to serve your highness. The wanderer answered, It is well, and was satisfied with the plan. Flora MacDonald dined with Lady Margaret, at whose table there sat an officer of the army, stationed here with a party of soldiers to watch for Prince Charles, in case of his flying to the Isle of Skye. She afterwards often laughed in good humour with this gentleman on her having so well deceived him. After dinner, Flora MacDonald on horseback and her supposed maid in Kingsburg, with a servant carrying some linen all on foot, proceeded towards that gentleman's house. Upon the road was a small rivulet, which they were obliged to cross. The wanderer, forgetting his assumed sex, that his clothes might not be wet, held them up a great deal too high. Kingsburg mentioned this to him, observing it might make a discovery. He said he would be more careful for the future. He was as good as his word, for the next brook they crossed he did not hold up his clothes at all, but let them float upon the water. He was very awkward in his female dress. His size was so large and his stride so great that some women whom they met reported that they had seen a very big woman who looked like a man in woman's clothes and that perhaps it was, as they expressed themselves, the prince after whom so much search was making. At Kingsburg he met with the most cordial reception, seemed gay at supper, and after it indulged himself in a cheerful glass with his worthy host. As he had not had his clothes off for a long time, the comfort of a good bed was highly relished by him, and he slept soundly till next day at one o'clock. The mistress of Corishatchin told me that in the forenoon she went into her father's room, who was also in bed, and suggested to him her apprehensions that a party of the military might come up, and that his guest and he had better not remain here too long. Her father said, Let the poor man repose himself after his fatigues, and as for me I care not, though they take off this old grey head ten or eleven years sooner than I should die in the course of nature. He then wrapped himself in the bedclothes, and again fell fast asleep. 
On the afternoon of that day the wanderer, still in the same dress, set out for Portree, with Flora MacDonald and a man-servant. His shoes being very bad, Kingsburg provided him with a new pair, and taking up the old one, said, I will faithfully keep them till you are safely settled at St. James. I will then introduce myself by shaking them at you to put you in mind of your night's entertainment and protection under my roof. He smiled and said, Be as good as your word. Kingsburg kept the shoes as long as he lived. After his death, a zealous Jacobite gentleman gave twenty guineas for them. Old Mrs. MacDonald, after her guest had left the house, took the sheets in which he had lain, folded them carefully, and charged her daughter that they should be kept unwashed, and that when she died her body should be wrapped in them as a winding-sheet. Her will was religiously observed. Upon the road to Portree, Prince Charles changed his dress and put on man's clothes again, a tartan short coat and waistcoat with filibeg and short hose, a plaid and a wig and bonnet. Mr. Donald MacDonald, called Donald Roy, had been sent express to the present Rasie, then the young laird, who was at that time at his sister's house, about three miles from Portree, attending his brother Dr. MacLeod, who was recovering of a wound he had received at the Battle of Culloden. Mr. MacDonald communicated to young Rasie the plan of conveying the wanderer to where old Rasie was, but was told that old Rasie had fled to Knoydert, a part of Glengarry's estate. There was then a dilemma what should be done. Donald Roy proposed that he should conduct the wanderer to the mainland, but young Rasie thought it too dangerous at that time, and said it would be better to conceal him in the island of Rasie till old Rasie could be informed where he was and give his advice what was best. But the difficulty was how to get him to Rasie. They could not trust a poor tree crew, and all the Rasie boats had been destroyed or carried off by the military, except two belonging to Malcolm MacLeod, which he had concealed somewhere. Dr MacLeod, being informed of this difficulty, said he would risk his life once more for Prince Charles, and it having occurred that there was a little boat upon a fresh-water lake in the neighbourhood, young Rasie and Dr MacLeod, with the help of some women, brought it to the sea by extraordinary exertion across a highland mile of land, one half of which was bog and the other a steep precipice. These gallant brothers, with the assistance of one little boy, rowed the small boat to Rasie, where they were to endeavour to find Captain MacLeod, as Malcolm was then called, and get one of his good boats with which they might return to Portree and receive the wanderer or in case of not finding him, they were to make the small boat serve, though the danger was considerable. Fortunately, on their first landing, they found their cousin Malcolm, who, with the utmost alacrity, got ready one of his boats with two strong men, John Mackenzie and Donald MacFriar. Malcolm, being the oldest man and most cautious, said that as young Rasie had not hitherto appeared in the unfortunate business, he ought not to run any risk but that Dr. MacLeod and himself, who were already publicly engaged, should go on this expedition. Young Razi answered, with an oath, that he would go, at the risk of his life and fortune. "'In God's name, then,' said Malcolm, "'let us proceed.' The two boatmen, however, now stopped short till they should be informed of their destination. 
and Mackenzie declared he would not move an oar till he knew where they were going, upon which they were both sworn to secrecy, and the business being imparted to them, they were eager to book it off to sea without loss of time. The boat soon landed about half a mile from the inn at Portree. All this was negotiated before the wanderer got forward to Portree. Malcolm MacLeod and MacFryer were dispatched to look for him. In a short time he appeared and went into the public house. Here Donald Roy, whom he had seen at Mugstot, received him and informed him of what had been concerted. He wanted silver for a guinea, but the landlord had only thirteen shillings. He was going to accept of this for his guinea, but Donald Roy very judiciously observed that it would discover him to be some great man, so he desisted. He slipped out of the house, leaving his fair protectress, whom he never again saw, and Malcolm MacLeod was presented to him by Donald Roy as a captain in his army. Young Rasie and Dr. MacLeod had waited in impatient anxiety in the boat. When he came, their names were announced to him. He would not permit the usual ceremonies of respect, but saluted them as his equals. Donald Roy stayed in Skye to be in readiness to get intelligence and give an alarm in case the troops should discover the retreat to Rasi, and Prince Charles was then conveyed in a boat to that island in the night. He slept a little upon the passage, and they landed about daybreak. There was some difficulty in accommodating him with a lodging, as almost all the houses in the island had been burnt by the soldiery. They repaired to a little hut, which some shepherds had lately built, and having prepared it as well as they could, and made a bed of heath for the stranger, they kindled a fire, and partook of some provisions which had been sent with him from Kingsburg. It was observed that he would not taste wheat-bread or brandy while oat-bread and whisky lasted, for these, said he, are my own country bread and drink. This was very engaging to the Highlanders. Young Rasie, being the only person of the company that durst appear with safety, he went in quest of something fresh for them to eat, but though he was amidst his own cows, sheep and goats, he could not venture to take any of them for fear of a discovery, but was obliged to supply himself by stealth. He therefore caught a kid and brought it to the hut in his plaid, and it was killed and dressed, and furnished them a meal which they relished much. The distressed wanderer, whose health was now a good deal impaired by hunger, fatigue and watching, slept a long time, but seemed to be frequently disturbed. Malcolm told me he would start from broken slumbers and speak to himself in different languages, French, Italian and English. I must, however, acknowledge that it is highly probable that my worthy friend Malcolm did not know precisely the difference between French and Italian. One of his expressions in English was, Oh God, poor Scotland! While they were in the hut, Mackenzie and MacFryer, the two boatmen, were placed as sentinels upon different eminences, and one day an incident happened which must not be omitted. There was a man wandering about the island selling tobacco. Nobody knew him, and he was suspected to be a spy. Mackenzie came running to the hut and told that this suspected person was approaching, upon which the three gentlemen, young Rasi, Dr. MacLeod and Malcolm, held a council of war upon him, and were unanimously of opinion that he should instantly be put to death. 
Prince Charles, at once assuming a grave and even severe countenance, said, God forbid that we should take away a man's life, who may be innocent, while we can preserve our own. The gentlemen, however, persisted in their resolution, while he as strenuously continued to take the merciful side. John Mackenzie, who sat watching at the door of the hut and overheard the debate, said in Erse, Well, well, he must be shot. You are the king, but we are of the parliament, and will do what we choose. Prince Charles, seeing the gentleman smile, asked what the man had said, and being told it in English, he observed that he was a clever fellow, and notwithstanding the perilous situation in which he was, laughed loud and heartily. Luckily, the unknown person did not perceive that there were people in the hut, at least did not come to it, but walked on past it, unknowing of his risk. It was afterwards found out that he was one of the Highland army, who was himself in danger. Had he come to them, they were resolved to dispatch him. For as Malcolm said to me, we could not keep him with us, and we durst not let him go. In such a situation, I would have shot my brother, if I had not been sure of him. John Mackenzie was at Raz's house when we were there. About eighteen years before, he hurt one of his legs when dancing, and being obliged to have it cut off, he now was going about with a wooden leg. The story of his being a member of Parliament is not yet forgotten. I took him out a little way from the house, gave him a shilling to drink Raz's health, and led him into a detail of the particulars which I have just related. With less foundation, some writers have traced the idea of a Parliament and of the British Constitution in rude and early times. I was curious to know if he had really heard or understood anything of that subject, which, had he been a greater man, would probably have been eagerly maintained. "'Why, John,' said I, "'did you think the King should be controlled by a Parliament?' He answered, "'I thought, sir, there were many voices against one.' The conversation then turning on the times, the wanderer said that, to be sure, the life he had led of late was a very hard one, but he would rather live in the way he now did for ten years than fall into the hands of his enemies.' The gentleman asked him what he thought his enemies would do with him, should he have the misfortune to fall into their hands. He said he did not believe they would dare to take his life publicly, but he dreaded being privately destroyed by poison or assassination. He was very particular in his inquiries about the wound which Dr. MacLeod had received at the Battle of Culloden, from a ball which entered at one shoulder and went cross to the other. The doctor happened still to have on the coat which he wore on that occasion. He mentioned that he himself had his horse shot under him at Culloden, that the ball hit the horse about two inches from his knee, and made him so unruly that he was obliged to change him for another. He threw out some reflections on the conduct of the disastrous affair at Culloden, saying, however, that perhaps it was rash in him to do so. I am now convinced that his suspicions were groundless, for I have had a good deal of conversation upon the subject with my very worthy and ingenious friend Mr. Andrew Lumsden, who was Under-Secretary to Prince Charles and afterwards Principal Secretary to his father at Rome, who, he assured me, was perfectly satisfied both of the abilities and honour of the generals who commanded the Highland Army on that occasion. Mr. Lumsden has written an account of the three battles in 1745-6, at once accurate and classical. Talking of the different Highland corps, 
the gentlemen who were present wished to have his opinion which were the best soldiers. He said he did not like comparisons among those corps. They were all best. He told his conductors he did not think it advisable to remain long in any one place, and that he expected a French ship to come for him to Loch Broom, among the Mackenzies. It then was proposed to carry him in one of Malcolm's boats to Loch Broom, though the distance was fifteen leagues coastwise. But he thought this would be too dangerous, and desired that at any rate they might first endeavour to obtain intelligence, upon which young Rasie wrote to his friend Mr Mackenzie of Applecross, but received an answer that there was no appearance of any French ship. It was therefore resolved that they should return to Skye, which they did, and landed in Strath, where they reposed in a cow-house belonging to Mr Nicholson of Scorbrick. The sea was very rough, and the boat took in a good deal of water. The wanderer asked if there was danger, as he was not used to such a vessel. Upon being told there was not, he sung an Erse song with much vivacity. He had by this time acquired a good deal of the Erse language. Young Rasie was now dispatched to where Donald Roy was, that they might get all the intelligence they could. And the wanderer, with much earnestness, charged Dr. MacLeod to have a boat ready at a certain place about seven miles off, as he said he intended it should carry him upon a matter of great consequence, and gave the doctor a case containing a silver spoon, knife and fork, saying, Keep you that till I see you which the doctor understood to be two days from that time. But all these orders were only blinds, for he had another plan in his head, but wisely thought it safest to trust his secrets to no more persons than was absolutely necessary. Having then desired Malcolm to walk with him a little way from the house, he soon opened his mind, saying, I deliver myself to you. Conduct me to the laird of Mackinnon's country. Malcolm objected that it was very dangerous, as so many parties of soldiers were in motion. He answered, There is nothing now to be done without danger. He then said that Malcolm must be the master and he the servant. So he took the bag, in which his linen was put up, and carried it on his shoulder. And observing that his waistcoat, which was of scarlet tartan with a gold twist button, was finer than Malcolm's, which was of a plain ordinary tartan, he put on Malcolm's waistcoat and gave him his, remarking at the same time that it did not look well that the servant should be better dressed than the master. Malcolm, though an excellent walker, found himself excelled by Prince Charles, who told him he should not much mind the parties that were looking for him, were he once but a musket shot from them, but that he was somewhat afraid of the Highlanders who were against him. He was well used to walking in Italy in pursuit of game, and he was even now so keen a sportsman that, having observed some partridges, he was going to take a shot. But Malcolm cautioned him against it, observing that the firing might be heard by the tenders who were hovering upon the coast. As they proceeded through the mountains, taking many a circuit to avoid any houses, Malcolm, to try his resolution, asked him what they should do should they fall in with a party of soldiers. He answered, Fight, to be sure. Having asked Malcolm if he should be known in his present dress, and Malcolm having replied he would, he said, Then I'll blacken my face with powder. That, said Malcolm, would discover you at once. 
"'Then,' said he, "'I must be put in the greatest dishabille possible.' So he pulled off his wig, tied a handkerchief round his head, and put his nightcap over it, tore the ruffles from his shirt, took the buckles out of his shoes, and made Malcolm fasten them with strings. But still Malcolm thought he would be known. "'I have so odd a face,' said he, "'that no man ever saw me, but he would know me again.' He seemed unwilling to give credit to the horrid narrative of men being massacred in cold blood after victory declared for the army commanded by the Duke of Cumberland. He could not allow himself to think that a general could be so barbarous. When they came within two miles of MacKinnon's house, Malcolm asked if he chose to see the laird. No, said he, by no means. I know MacKinnon to be as good and as honest a man as any in the world, but he is not fit for my purpose at present. You must conduct me to some other house, but let it be a gentleman's house. Malcolm then determined that they should go to the house of his brother-in-law, Mr. John MacKinnon, and from thence be conveyed to the mainland of Scotland, and claim the assistance of MacDonald of Scothouse. The wanderer at first objected to this, because Scothouse was cousin to a person of whom he had suspicions but he acquiesced in Malcolm's opinion. When they were near Mr. John MacKinnon's house, they met a man of the name of Ross, who had been a private soldier in the Highland army. He fixed his eyes steadily on the wanderer in his disguise, and having at once recognised him, he clapped his hands and exclaimed, "'Alas, is this the case?' Finding that there was now a discovery, Malcolm asked, "'What's to be done?' "'Swear him to secrecy,' answered Prince Charles, upon which Malcolm drew his dirk, and on the naked blade made him take a solemn oath that he would say nothing of his having seen the wanderer till his escape should be made public. Malcolm's sister, whose house they reached pretty early in the morning, asked him who the person was that was along with him. He said it was one Lewis Cor from Creef, who, being a fugitive like himself, for the same reason, he had engaged him as his servant, but that he had fallen sick. "'Poor man,' said she, "'I pity him. At the same time my heart warms to a man of his appearance.' Her husband was gone a little way from home, but was expected every minute to return. She set down to her brother a plentiful highland breakfast. Prince Charles acted the servant very well, sitting at a respectful distance with his bonnet off. Malcolm then said to him, "'Mr. Cor, you have as much need of this as I have. There is enough for us both. You had better draw nearer and share with me.' Upon which he rose, made a profound bow, sat down at table with his supposed master, and ate very heartily. After this there came in an old woman, who, after the mode of ancient hospitality, brought warm water and washed Malcolm's feet. He desired her to wash the feet of the poor man who attended him. She at first seemed averse to this from pride, as thinking him beneath her, and in the periphrastic language of the Highlanders and the Irish said warmly, "'Though I wash your father's son's feet, why should I wash his father's son's feet?' She was, however, persuaded to do it. They then went to bed and slept for some time, and when Malcolm awaked he was told that Mr. John MacKinnon, his brother-in-law, was in sight. He sprang out to talk to him before he should see Prince Charles. After saluting him, 
Malcolm, pointing to the sea, said, "'What, John, if the prince should be prisoner on board one of those tenders?' "'God forbid,' replied John. "'What if we had him here?' said Malcolm. "'I wish we had,' answered John. "'We should take care of him.' "'Well, John,' said Malcolm, "'he is in your house.' John, in a transport of joy, wanted to run directly in and pay his obeisance. But Malcolm stopped him, saying, "'Now is your time to behave well and do nothing that can discover him.' John composed himself, and having sent away all his servants upon different errands, he was introduced into the presence of his guest, and was then desired to go and get ready a boat lying near his house, which, though but a small leaky one, they resolved to take rather than go to the laird of Mackinnon. John Mackinnon, however, thought otherwise, and upon his return told them that his chief and Lady Mackinnon were coming in the laird's boat. Prince Charles said to his trusty Malcolm, I am sorry for this, but must make the best of it. Mackinnon then walked up from the shore and did homage to the wanderer. His lady waited in a cave to which they all repaired and were entertained with cold meat and wine. Mr. Malcolm MacLeod, being now superseded by the Laird of Mackinnon, desired leave to return, which was granted him. And Prince Charles wrote a short note, which he subscribed James Thompson, informing his friends that he had got away from Skye and thanking them for their kindness, and he desired this might be speedily conveyed to young Rasie and Dr. MacLeod, that they might not wait longer in expectation of seeing him again. He bade a cordial adieu to Malcolm, and insisted on his accepting of silver stock buckle and ten guineas from his purse, though, as Malcolm told me, it did not appear to contain above forty. Malcolm at first begged to be excused, saying that he had a few guineas at his service, but Prince Charles answered, "'You will have need of money. I shall get enough when I come upon the mainland.' The Laird of Mackinnon then conveyed him to the opposite coast of Knoidert. Old Rasi, to whom intelligence had been sent, was crossing at the same time to Skye, but as they did not know of each other, and each had apprehensions, the two boats kept aloof. These are the particulars which I have collected concerning the extraordinary concealments and escapes of Prince Charles in the Hebrides. He was often in imminent danger. The troops traced him from the Long Island across Skye to Portree, but there lost him. Here I stop, having received no farther authentic information of his fatigues and perils before he escaped to France. Kings and subjects may both take a lesson of moderation from the melancholy fate of the House of Stuart, that kings may not suffer degradation and exile, and subjects may not be harassed, by the evils of a disputed succession. Let me close the scene on that unfortunate house with the elegant and pathetic reflections of Voltaire in his Histoire Générale. Que les hommes privés, says that brilliant writer, speaking of Prince Charles, qui se croit malheureux, jette les jours sur ce prince et ses ancêtres. In another place, he thus sums up the sad story of the family in general. Il n'y a aucun exemple dans l'histoire d'une maison si longtemps infortunée. Le premier des rois d'Écosse, qui eut le nom de Jacques, après avoir été dix-huit ans prisonnière en Angleterre, mourut assassiné avec sa femme 
par la main de ses sujets. Jacques II, son fils, fut tué à vingt-neuf ans en combattant contre les Anglais. Jacques III, mis en prison par son peuple, fut tué ensuite par les révoltés dans une bataille. Jacques IV périt dans un combat qu'il perdit. Marie Stuart, sa petite fille, chassée de son trône, fugitive en Angleterre, ayant longu dix-huit ans en prison, se vit condamnée à mort par des juges anglais et eut la tête tranchée. Charles Ier, petit-fils de Marie, roi d'Écosse et d'Angleterre, vendu par les Écossais et jugé à mort par les Anglais, meurut sur un acheveu dans la place publique. Jacques, son fils, septième du nom et deuxième en Angleterre, fut chassé de ses trois royaumes, et pour comble de malheur, on contesta à son fils sa naissance. Le fils ne tenta de remonter sur le trône de ses pierres que pour faire périr ses amis par des bourreaux. Et nous avons vu le prince Charles-Édouard réunissant en vain les vertus de ses pères et le courage du roi Jean Sobieski, son aïeur maternel, exécuter les exploits et essuyer les malheurs les plus incroyables. Si quelque chose justifie ceux qui croient une fatalité à laquelle rien ne peut se soustraire, c'est cette suite continuelle de malheurs qui a persécuté la maison de Stuart pendant plus de trois cents années. The gallant Malcolm was apprehended in about ten days after they separated, put aboard a ship and carried prisoner to London. He said the prisoners in general were very ill-treated in their passage, but there were soldiers on board who lived well and sometimes invited him to share with them, that he had the good fortune not to be thrown into jail, but was confined in the house of a messenger of the name of Dick. To his astonishment, only one witness could be found against him, though he had been so openly engaged, and therefore for want of sufficient evidence he was set at liberty. He added that he thought himself in such danger that he would gladly have compounded for banishment. Yet, he said, he should never be so ready for death as he then was. There is philosophical truth in this. A man will meet death much more firmly at one time than another. The enthusiasm even of a mistaken principle warms the mind and sets it above the fear of death, which in our cooler moments, if we really think of it, cannot but be terrible or at least very awful. Miss Flora MacDonald being then also in London, under the protection of Lady Primrose, that lady provided a post-chaise to convey her to Scotland and desired she might choose any friend she pleased to accompany her. She chose Malcolm. So, said he with a triumphant air, I went to London to be hanged and returned in a post-chaise with Miss Flora MacDonald. Mr. MacLeod of Muir Avonside, whom we saw at Rasay, assured us that Prince Charles was in London in 1759 and that there was then a plan in agitation for restoring his family. Dr. Johnson could scarcely credit this story and said there could be no probable plan at that time. Such an attempt could not have succeeded unless the King of Prussia had stopped the army in Germany, for both the army and the fleet would, even without orders, have fought for the King to whom they had engaged themselves. 
having related so many particulars concerning the grandson of the unfortunate King James the Second, having given due praise to fidelity and generous attachment, which, however erroneous the judgment may be, are honourable for the heart, I must do the Highlanders the justice to attest that I found everywhere amongst them a high opinion of the virtues of the king now upon the throne, and an honest disposition to be faithful subjects to his majesty, whose family has possessed the sovereignty of this country so long, that a change, even for the abdicated family, would now hurt the best feelings of all his subjects. The abstract point of right would involve us in a discussion of remote and perplexed questions, and after all we should have no clear principle of decision. That establishment which from political necessity took place in 1688 by a breach in the succession of our kings, and which, whatever benefits may have accrued from it, certainly gave a shock to our monarchy, the able and constitutional Blackstone wisely rests on the solid footing of authority, our ancestors having most indisputably a competent jurisdiction to decide this great and important question, and having in fact decided it, it is now become our duty at this distance of time to acquiesce in their determination. Mr. Paley, the present Archdeacon of Carlisle, in his Principles of Moral and Political Philosophy, having, with much clearness of argument, shown the duty of submission to civil government to be founded neither on an indefeasible jus divinum nor on compact, but on expediency, lays down this rational position. Irregularity in the first foundation of a state, or subsequent violence, fraud or injustice in getting possession of the supreme power, are not sufficient reasons for resistance after the government is once peaceably settled. No subject of the British Empire conceives himself engaged to vindicate the justice of the Norman claim or, or conquest, or apprehends that his duty in any manner depends upon that controversy. So likewise, if the House of Lancaster, or even the posterity of Cromwell, had been at this day seated upon the throne of England, we should have been as little concerned to inquire how the founder of the family came there. In conformity with this doctrine, I myself, though fully persuaded that the House of Stuart had originally no right to the crown of Scotland, for that Balliol and not Bruce was the lawful heir, should yet have thought it very culpable to have rebelled on that account against Charles I, or even a prince of that house much nearer the time, in order to assert the claim of the posterity of Balliol. However convinced I am of the justice of that principle, which holds allegiance and protection to be reciprocal, I do, however, acknowledge that I am not satisfied with the cold sentiment which would confine the exertions of the subject within the strict line of duty. I would have every breast animated with the fervour of loyalty, with that generous attachment which delights in doing somewhat more than is required, and makes service perfect freedom. And therefore, as our most gracious sovereign, on his accession to the throne, gloried in being born a Briton, so in my more private sphere, ego me nunc denique natum cratulor. I am happy that a disputed succession no longer distracts our minds, and that a monarchy established by law is now so sanctioned by time that we can fully indulge those feelings of loyalty which I am ambitious to excite. 
they are feelings which have ever actuated the inhabitants of the highlands and the hebrides the plant of loyalty is there in full vigour and the brunswick graft now flourishes like a native shoot to that spirited race of people i may with propriety apply the elegant lines of a modern poet on the facile temper of the beauteous sex like birds new caught who flutter for a time and struggle with captivity in vain but by and by they rest they smooth their plumes and to new masters sing their former notes surely such notes are much better than the querulous growlings of suspicious whigs and discontented republicans kingsburg conducted us in his boat across one of the lochs as they call them or arms of the sea which flow in upon all the coasts of sky to a mile beyond a place called grishinish our horses had been sent round by land to meet us by this sail we saved eight miles of bad riding dr johnson said when we take into the computation what we have saved and what we have gained by this agreeable sail it is a great deal he observed it is very disagreeable riding in sky the way is so narrow one only at a time can travel so it is quite unsocial and you cannot indulge in meditation by yourself because you must be always attending to the steps which your horse takes this was a just and clear description of its inconveniences the topic of emigration being again introduced dr johnson said that a rapacious chief would make a wilderness of his estate mr donald mcqueen told us that the oppression which then made so much noise was owing to landlords listening to bad advice in the letting of their lands that interested and designing people flattered them with golden dreams of much higher rents than could reasonably be paid and that some of the gentlemen taxmen or upper tenants were themselves in part the occasion of the mischief by overrating the farms of others that many of the taxmen rather than comply with exorbitant demands had gone off to america and impoverished the country by draining it of its wealth and that their places were filled by a number of poor people who had lived under them properly speaking as servants paid by a certain proportion of the produce of the lands though called sub-tenants i observed that if the men of substance were once banished from a highland estate it might probably be greatly reduced in its value for one bad year might ruin a set of poor tenants and men of any property would not settle in such a country unless from the temptation of getting land extremely cheap for an inhabitant of any good county in britain had better go to america than to the highlands or the hebrides here therefore was a consideration that ought to induce a chief to act a more liberal part from a mere motive of interest independent of the lofty and honourable principle of keeping a clan together to be in readiness to serve his king i added that i could not help thinking a little arbitrary power in the sovereign to control the bad policy and greediness of the chiefs might sometimes be of service in france a chief would not be permitted to force a number of the king's subjects out of the country dr johnson concurred with me observing that were an oppressive chieftain a subject of the french king he would probably be admonished by a letter during our sail dr johnson asked about the use of the dirk with which he imagined the highlanders cut their meat 
He was told they had a knife and fork besides to eat with. He asked, how did the women do? And was answered, some of them had a knife and fork too. But in general, the men, when they had cut their meat, handed their knives and forks to the women, and they themselves ate with their fingers. The old tutor of MacDonald always ate fish with his fingers, alleging that a knife and fork gave it a bad taste. I took the liberty to observe to Dr. Johnson that he did so. Yes, said he, but it is because I am short-sighted and afraid of bones, for which reason I am not fond of eating many kinds of fish, because I must use my fingers. Dr. Macpherson's dissertations on Scottish antiquities, which he had looked at when at Corrichatachin, being mentioned, he remarked that you might read half an hour and ask yourself what you had been reading. There were so many words to so little matter that there was no getting through the book. As soon as we reached the shore, we took leave of Kingsburg and mounted our horses. We passed through a wild moor, in many places so soft that we were obliged to walk, which was very fatiguing to Dr. Johnson. Once he had advanced on horseback to a very bad step. There was a steep declivity on his left, to which he was so near that there was not room for him to dismount in the usual way. He tried to alight on the other side, as if he had been a young buck indeed, but in the attempt he fell at his length upon the ground, from which, however, he got up immediately, without being hurt. During this dreary ride we were sometimes relieved by a view of branches of the sea, that universal medium of connection amongst mankind. A guide who had been sent with us from Kingsburg explored the way, much in the same manner as I suppose is pursued in the wilds of America, by observing certain marks known only to the inhabitants. We arrived at Dunvegan late in the afternoon. The great size of the castle, which is partly old and partly new, and is built upon a rock close to the sea, while the land around it presents nothing but wild, moorish, hilly and craggy appearances, gave a rude magnificence to the scene. Having dismounted, we ascended a flight of steps, which was made by the late MacLeod for the accommodation of persons coming to him by land, there formerly being, for security, no other access to the castle but from the sea, so that visitors who came by the land were under the necessity of getting into a boat and sailed round to the only place where it could be approached. We were introduced into a stately dining-room, and received by Lady MacLeod, mother of the laird, who, with his friend Talisker, having been detained on the road, did not arrive till some time after us. We found the lady of the house a very polite and sensible woman, who had lived for some time in London, and had there been in Dr. Johnson's company. After we had dined, we repaired to the drawing-room, where some of the young ladies of the family with their mother were at tea. This room had formerly been the bedchamber of Sir Roderick MacLeod, one of the old lairds, and he chose it because behind it there was a considerable cascade, the sound of which disposed him to sleep. Above his bed was this inscription, Sir Rory MacLeod of Dunvegan Knight, God send good rest. Rory is the contraction of Roderick. He was called Rory Moore, that is, Great Rory, not from his size, but from his spirit. Our entertainment here was in so elegant a style, and reminded my fellow-traveller so much of England, that he became quite joyous. He laughed and said, Boswell, 
we came in at the wrong end of this island. Sir, said I, it was best to keep this for the last. He answered, I would have it both first and last. End of section 12